John chapter 5. Let's begin with verse 1. It's one of my favorite stories in, in all of Scripture. Such a unique story. John 5 verse 1. <clears throat> After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. Interesting. And these lay a great multitude, we're told, of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, examples of the sicknesses, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. The Apostle John, who is our author here, he, he sets the scene right from the beginning by, by giving us the locale. He says, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there was a pool. And then he tells us in the Hebrew tongue, this pool was called Bethsaida. And that pool had five porches. So we're given some, some descriptive language about the location. Now, as far as the geography is concerned, if you were to exit the temple complex and you were to head north inside the city of Jerusalem, you would exit the temple complex, again going north, using what was called the Sheep Gate. In fact, one of the, the unique characteristics of this particular gate was that it, it wasn't used in a traditional sense to, to enter and exit the city. It was used to enter and exit the temple. It was, for lack of a better way of describing it, an interior gate. Now, as you passed through the sheep gate, which was designed to control the flow of the sacrifices, the sacrificial lambs that would be brought up to the altar, the Roman fortress of Antonio would be just to your left with the pool of Bethsaida, directly in front of you. So that's a little bit of the context. Interior gate, the sheep gate, exiting the temple. You have the fortress of Antonio on your left. Right in front of you is this unique pool. John continues by explaining that the pool of Bethsaida possessed five porches. And we'll, we'll unpack that in, in a few minutes. And that in these porches lay this great multitude of sick people. And then he describes these sick people as blind and lame and paralyzed. And they're all gathered for a unique reason. They're waiting for the moving of the water. Now that seems like an odd thing. So John gives us, he explains uh, the scene. He adds that, that an angel would go down at a certain time into the pool. He would stir up the water, the angel, so that whoever stepped in first after the stirring would be healed of whatever disease. Now, obviously, when you read this story, the most, the most pressing, obvious question that arises is whether or not there was actually something supernatural about what was occurring at this particular pool when the water stirred. Like, is this for real? Was something actually happening here supernatural? That there was a supernatural healing, that an actual angel would go down, stir up the water? Is this legit? Or is this John just kind of letting us know that there was this development that had occurred over time of a cruel superstition, that people thought that the stirring of the water was an angel and that the whole thing was some like a folklore or a ruse. So which one was it? 
Now, now I'll concede up front that there's, there's little room to be dogmatic, I think, either way. But I'm of the opinion, to be, to be honest, that something supernatural was indeed happening. And you might say, well, well Zach, how can you say that? Well, well, look again. I mean, John, he records, and again, he's, just, he's recording, and he tells us at a certain time, and then no, well, he says, an angel of God, sent from God, comes to the pool, stirs up the water, so that upon seeing it, people step in, the first one, and they're healed. Like, he lists this, not in, in a way that it's folklore, but in a way that it's, it's to be taken seriously. Now, before you think I'm crazy, please consider two points about the text. First, John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there is absolutely nothing in the original language to indicate that John was skeptical of what was happening. Like in some ways, when you read through this, John's kind of, uh, it, as a matter of fact, kind of like everyone knows this happens. Everyone knows why. I just feel like because you might not live in the area, I should let you, let you in on it. Aside from this, if you believe the Old Testament is also divinely inspired, like a divine record of God dealing with humanity, then such a scene, such an occurrence, isn't far-fetched, is it? I mean, think about some of the other unbelievable things, like God brought animals to the ark in groupings of two, male and female. Abraham and Sarah conceived it in old age. You have 10 plagues being used by God to liberate the people from Egypt and Moses parting the Red Sea. While in the wilderness, God provided supernatural food from heaven, manna. People were healed of a poisonous serpent bite by looking at a bronze serpent on a pole placed in the center of the camp. We have a record in the Old Testament of, of a battle being so, so important that God holds the sun back. The sun stands still. There's a record, an actual written record in the Bible of an ass speaking to Balaam. That's incredible that God would use an ass to speak to Balaam in the same way he uses one from this pulpit every Sunday. <laughs> Naaman being cured of leprosy by dipping in the Jordan seven times. A dead man coming back to life. How? By Elisha the prophet laying on the bones. Uh, by, by them laying the man on Elisha's bones. Crazy story. Jonah surviving three days in the fish. Daniel in the lion's den. The three amigos of the fiery furnace. I could go on and on and on, right? About the stories in the Old Testament, divinely inspired, that contain supernatural things that we take and we read and we accept. Again, to me, it's not crazy. Because if you, if you hold the first five words of the Bible to be true, that in the beginning God created, then you can logically concede that God, existing outside of the natural order, can do what he wants. And that what we perceive to be supernatural is actually very natural to the God that supersedes it all. Sure, God can't contradict the natural order of things, but he can supersede it. Like, obviously. The water in the pool of Bethsaida. It wasn't magical water. And it didn't possess the water in and of itself. Some type of healing property. And the text doesn't make that claim. 
Instead, all that John says is that at a certain time, God got involved. He sent an angel to stir the water, and this unique miracle manifests as a result, a physical healing. I think it really happens. And not only does this miracle naturally fit within a book that records the actions of the supernatural God, but you know, I should add that the miracle itself, like if this is true, it's totally consistent with what we know about God. You have this great multitude of people that are, are sick. They're blind and they're lame and they're paralyzed. And you know God loved those people with all of his heart? Like they were suffering, experiencing the terrible effects of living in a world that's been destroyed by sin. And beyond that, the people that were navigating life with these type of afflictions were in a hopeless situation. I mean, this is the first century. These people lacked health care. They didn't have medicine. Aside from that, pertaining to the social structure, they were the forgotten. There was no social safety net. Most of them occupied what we would call the, like, just the bottom rung of society. The unsullied. I can see a situation where such a healing would be both actual and literal. Now imagine for a moment such a crowd gathering around this pool, like the scene that this crowd would have created. John tells us that it was a great multitude. This is not a small crew. This is great, this numerous, the place is packed. All five of these porches of this pool are filled with these sick people. And the word that we have translated sick, it just means that they're feebled or, or those that, that lack strength. Now, whether it was on account of, of blindness, and the word that's used here for blindness, it describes both a physical and actual blindness, but as well as a mental blindness, like a complete blindness, and lameness, we're told, which, which was a person who had been maimed in some way. Or there was those with a form of paralysis. So this is kind of the parameters, blindness, lameness, paralysis, or people that were just, they were powerless. It's such a scene as you just, as you imagine it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking because it really does in a lot of ways presents this stark view of the world affected by sin, like sin's effect on humanity, that we're all to a degree in sin apart from Jesus blind. We're blind to the world around us. We're blind, blind to the truth. We're blind. Have you ever, in navigating our world, you see something and it's so clear to you and everyone around you, the secular people around you, see it the totally opposite. Like they, they just can't even process how it is that you see this a certain way. Well, there's a blindness that exists because of sin. And not only that, but, but people are lame as a result. We navigate a world as blind people. We're going to experience our fair shares of hurt and injury and damage. And we're powerless, paralyzed in sin to do anything to remedy it on our own. I mean, this scene around the pool of Bethsaida, it's a, it's a picture of, of humanity, of the world. Well, John doesn't give us any additional information other than he just says a certain time. It was at a certain time, the water stirred. Like we don't know if the stirring happened every day, like if there was a certain time, you know, two o'clock, the water would stir. And that was just known to have happened every day. We don't know if it was daily or if it happened every Tuesday, 
you know, weekly or or maybe it was during this particular feast. Again, John kind of uh, ties it together. It was a certain feast. Or it just happens sporadically, which is why they're all waiting. We, we don't know. It's just a certain time. This mob of, of suffering people. They're there and they're jockeying for the perfect place that would give them the best chance of getting into the pool first. I mean, that's, that was the gig. That was the deal. Now you can imagine the rising tension, you know, the, the anxiety of the scene. I mean, this was, if you're one of these people, blind, lame, paralyzed, this is your only hope in this society of being healed, of having your life restored, of having any type of future or hope. Getting into the water was paramount and you had to be first. And it's in such a scene. That the Apostle John, he continues his account, look at verse 5. He says, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now, though John, John only uses a few words, I'm, I'm struck by such a sad description. <laughs> a certain man waiting desperately for a certain time when he might possibly experience a most unlikely healing if only he could muster the strength to get into the, the water first. But after 38 years of trying, at least he had some tenacity. Now, we don't know anything about the man. We don't know his name. We don't know his family history, his vocation, age. We know nothing. All John tells us is that he had an infirmity, and he had had that infirmity for 38 years. In the Greek, the coupling, unaffirmity, is, is rather telling, and it intends to be. Not only does it mean that this man was want of strength or possessed a feebleness of health, but it indicates for us the word infirmity, that this feebleness, that this weakness had come as a result of, of an internal malady of sorts, a disease. The, the point that John is making is that the man hadn't been born with this sickness. He had, at some point in his life, contracted it. At some moment, this guy had been fit as a fiddle. And yet with time, 38 years to be exact, his vitality and health were slowly being robbed by this internal infirmity, this disease he had contracted. As we'll see, his health had deteriorated so much to the point that he could no longer walk on his own strength. He had progressively gotten worse and worse and worse. In fact, later in the story in verse 14, Jesus will make an interesting and insightful statement to the man. I'll read it for you. Jesus will say to him, he'll say, see, you have been made well. And then he'll add, this is fascinating. He'll say, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And in light of that exhortation, we can say with a certain amount of likelihood that this man's infirmity, that his, his decline in health had been the result of really some poor choices, some sinful decisions. In fact, most scholars believe that the infirmity was some type of venereal disease that was contracted through immoral living that was well known in this particular time period and in this region. And if that were the case, you can add that the man's not only tormented physically, but he's also suffering internally, emotionally. Like there is a greater affliction other than his physical person to his internal being, the soul. 
You know, again, if you're this man sitting around this pool, looking at the great multitude, there's no doubt that he saw men and women trying to get into the water just like himself, who at no fault of their own had been born with their affliction. Like you have your affliction because of bad decisions. There are people there that were born that way. And that would have probably eaten at you to a degree. And not, and not only that, but aside from those folks, you would have also noticed people who uh, were lame or maimed or blind because of, uh, of an accident that had occurred. Like it had to have eaten at this guy that unlike those people, he found himself in a terrible plight. Why? Because of his own sin and stupidity. Verse six, I love this. John writes, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew what he already had been in that condition a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? And so much John leaves out. I wonder how long Jesus stood there, you know, watching the scene, examining the crowd, looking over those that had gathered at this pool. You know, in a sea of so much human suffering, it is curious why Jesus would have just singled out this one man, especially when so many who were there needed his help. And there are examples where Jesus would stay up in, in the areas around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum all night healing the sick. Like, why, why pick out this one guy? You know, it's the flow that, of the text, the way John kind of paints the picture that I think is profound and gives us further insight. Notice again, Jesus saw him, right? And then I like the, the, the next word, he knew, he knew, saw, he knew, and then he said. And I think that's an amazing progression. Now the translation that Jesus knew that he had been in that condition a long time is a little misleading. In your Bible, it's likely that the words in that condition are italicized. And they're italicized to let you know. The scholars do this so that you know that they're, they're, they were not, those words are not in the original translation. They're added in. They're not in the original manuscripts, but they're added in to provide some clarity to help you understand what's happening. And I'm sure that Jesus knew, he looked at the man and he knew that he had been suffering for 38 years. Jesus knew all. But it's more likely that, that John is telling us that Jesus, seeing him lying there, knew he'd been lying there a long time. And don't miss the, it's not semantics, but the subtle difference between the two. You see, it's entirely possible that the reason Jesus singles this one man out in a sea of suffering is because this man had spent more time than anyone else at the pool of Bethsaida. That he had been there a long time. You know, if, if you're Jesus and you're, you're wanting to articulate a point to the sea of humanity, the sea of suffering, it's hard to imagine a dynamic where anyone there could have been there longer than 30, the 38 years. I mean, this guy was the wily veteran. He had been there forever. Everyone knew who he was. And if you were wanting, no pun intended, to make a splash with the healing or to articulate a point, you'd be hard-pressed to probably find a better candidate than this certain man. Again, consider that, that year upon year upon year, 38 to be exact, this broken man would make the painstaking journey from wherever his home was, through the Sheep Gate, down to Bethsaida. 
through great difficulties. He'd try to get to the pool's edge to wait for the stirring. But how depressing that for a total of 38 years, someone had always beaten him into the water. For years, he painfully knew that his best attempts had fallen woefully short. Couldn't get there. For years, his hopes were dashed over and over and over again because he wasn't quick enough. The man wasn't able. And it's with that in mind, consider again Jesus' question. John writes, Jesus saw, knew, and said, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Honestly, <laughs> what an audacious question for Jesus to ask such a man at such a place in such a condition. I mean, you'd look at, hey man, you want to be made well. Why else would I be here? Like, I wouldn't be at the pool if I didn't want to be healed. I wouldn't have tried for 38 long years if I didn't deeply desire some type of healing. So if the answer, again, is so obvious, why is it that Jesus is asking this man an obvious question? And let's unpack the question backwards. Bear with me. In the Greek language, the word well, do you want to be made well, can be translated as whole or sound. And that's a very important distinction. Because the word, it implies not just the removal of the disease that was afflicting him, but a complete reversal of the effects that he had experienced from the affliction. You know, for this man, after 38 years with an infirmity, having the infirmity healed or taken away, he still can't walk. He's still in a terrible situation. It doesn't change a lot. But when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? It's not just, do you want the disease that's causing this affliction to be removed? It's you want the whole thing to be fixed. It'd be like telling the cancer patient, would you like your cancer removed? And in the same moment, I'll put hair back on your head and eyebrows? Like full strength and health? Amazing. Now, it should be reiterated that the man's infirmity was the result of a physical action. The contraction of an internal disease that's destroying his life. The man's outward condition had been the result of an unseen killer within. You see, Jesus is not just asking the man if he wants to be cured of the disease. He's asking the man if he wants to be made as if the disease had never existed in his life in the first place. Do you want to be made whole? Be made well. Again, working backwards, consider the implication of Jesus' use of this phrase, to be made, to be made well. By his very definition, what Jesus is promising was a work that would commence in the man's life independent of his specific involvement, to be made well. Now, the man understood, even being at the pool of Bethsaida to begin with, that any miracle would have to be supernatural. Like the dynamic at the pool kind of, it demanded his activity. It would be supernatural, but he had to get into the water. The angel would stir. He knew to be made well, he'd have to work hard to get into the water. And he'd have to get there first. Again, as he knew, he was unable. His ability was required and was ineffective. 
Notice, again, Jesus says, do you want to be made whole? And do you want that to happen apart from you needing to do anything? Lastly, notice the essence of the question, do you want? Which again, I think is fascinating. Jesus doesn't ask him, do you need? And he doesn't ask him, are you able? He just asks, do you want? You see, what's brilliant is that Jesus is speaking to the man's desire. And it's bizarre. Because again, the man is in the situation where he's trying to get into the water. Do you want, do you have the desire? Friend, what do you really want? Again, if if you've been living a life of sin, do you want wholeness? Or, and this happens, have you grown so comfortable in your present misery or your present condition that you're not sure? Like, what do you really desire when it comes to your life, when it pertains to Jesus? Do you want the maintaining of the status quo or do you want a radical transformation? Is there, and I should ask, again, what this guy's probably wrestling with, is there a part of you that has just accepted your affliction as being just? Maybe you know you've, you've made bad decisions. Maybe you know that, that those decisions have had negative consequences in your life and you've kind of come to terms with that. You're like, I know I'm suffering and I know it's my fault. It's consequences. You know, I have found, and this is true, that some people never experience the healing that Jesus offers. They won't say it but it's true that they don't actually want to be healed. Verse seven, let's look at his reaction. The sick man answered Jesus. He says, and it's so insightful. He says, sir, I have no man. Do you want to be made well? Here's his response. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone else steps before me. Now, how interesting that in response to a question centered on desire, The man points to what? Activity. It's as though he's saying to Jesus, do I want to be made well? Yes, absolutely. I'm so sick of my condition. I'm tired of this life. I'm tired of my misery. I'm tired of lying here. Why else would I try so hard to get into this pool when the water stirs if I didn't want to be made well? But I have a problem. He says, I have no man to put me into the pool because when I'm coming, someone gets there before me. And the man's making a very sad but but true confession. He's saying, yeah, I want to be made well, but sir, don't you see it's impossible? That's what he's saying. Yeah, I want to, but I can't get there. I can't get into the water. No matter how hard I try, I always come up just short. I'm not able. I want it. I can't do it. The way I read this statement, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool, it it oozes a measure of desperation. And in in many ways, he's he's asking, I think he's he's asking Jesus, yeah, I want to. I can't get in. People beat me there. I need someone to help me get into the water. You know, the man falsely believes 
that his only hope of healing was to get to the water first. What he doesn't realize, but he'll see, is that Jesus didn't need to put him into the pool for the man to be made whole. Now, to be fair to the man, he probably, maybe he's heard rumors about Jesus. That's probably likely, but Jesus hasn't introduced himself. There's not like Jesus pictures all over the place. You know, a lot of portraits of Jesus, you know, doesn't know who Jesus is. You know that Jesus is a healer. From his perspective, this man could only think of one way that his need could be met. Okay? Sadly, he's misguided. Okay? Check out what happens next, verse 8. So Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. I mentioned at the beginning, this is one of my favorite stories. It's become one of my favorite stories because I, I think it's so often misunderstood. And when I say it's misunderstood, I'm grieved from time to time when I'm listening to someone teach about this passage, a commentator. And they will say at this point that the man is healed the moment that he attempted to obey the command of Jesus to rise. Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and, and walk. And immediately the man attempts to arise. And it's in that moment he's healed and he took up his bed and he walked. They'll even add that Jesus asked the man to do the impossible. Specifically to demonstrate to the man that if he was willing to trust Jesus, that he could be healed. My problem is why can't we let Jesus just be awesome without demanding human involvement? We always have to figure out a way, instead of Jesus being just super cool, we have to figure out a way to get human involvement somehow. The man had to have done something, right? No. Now what's off about this perspective is that John's pretty clear what happened in the passage. And this twisting and the way that people read it, John doesn't substantiate at all. Like, look again, Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. Note that. Then he took up his bed and walked. Now notice the second and third directives. What are they? Take up your bed. So what correlates? He took up his bed, and the third directive was walk. So what happens? He walked. But notice Jesus begins with the command to rise. And what is the correlation? The man was made well. Okay, don't miss that. There's three directives. Rise, take up your bed, walk. The third one, so he walks. The second one, he takes up his bed. The correlation to rise is he was made well, which is what Jesus had asked him about in the beginning. You know, part of the problem with how we read this story is a faulty understanding about the word rise. You know, in the Greek, the word that we have is ergio. And I probably butchered that because I'm not Greek. But it's a verb. And it means 
to cause to rise. Like, please understand, this was undoubtedly an impossible command for a man in this condition. Like, in and of himself, there was no way physically, in any capacity, this man would be able to rise up on his own, okay? And yet, while the word is a directive, in the Greek, the word itself also carries with it the power to fulfill the directive. Let me give you another example of this word being used in Scripture. In Luke 8, verses 54 and 55, we read that Jesus took this little girl by the hand. Now, a little context. This little girl is a hundred percent dead. <laughs> dead as a doornail. Cold. Not breathing. No electrodes firing. She is as dead as you can get. Dead, dead, dead. Not alive. Dead. By the time Jesus gets there. She's dead. I don't know if I hammered that point home. So she's passed. Jesus takes her by the hand. And this is what he says. He says, little girl, arise. Same word. And Luke says her spirit came again and she arose straightway. Now the, the word, when Jesus says little girl arise, the word itself not only called her forth, it caused her to come forth. It ties into the idea that God created all things out of nothing. That, that how did God create? God said, he spoke, and it happened. Let there be light. And there, and, and there was light. It wasn't as though there wouldn't be. The directive brought the power to fulfill the directive. So, so, so here's my point. This Greek word. It doesn't compel a person to act. It causes a person to act. Let me give you an illustration. If you go to a Falcons game, and the announcer at some point, probably a pre-audio audio recording of Samuel L. Jackson, saying, rise up. What happens? Well, if you're sitting there at a Falcons game, you hear Samuel L. Jackson, rise up. You hear the directive. You put down your nachos and beer. And you stand to your feet and you cheer a team who's likely blowing a fourth quarter lead. And yet, that's not what this Greek word describes. You see, if, if, if it was Jesus saying to the crowd, rise up, not only would you rise up in the moment, but the guy behind you in the wheelchair would rise up in actuality, everyone in the stadium would immediately get to their feet. Yeah, have you ever noticed, this just kind of hit me, Jesus healing Lazarus. So Jesus is standing there in a very dangerous place for this kind of power. A graveyard. And what does Jesus have to do? If Jesus has stood there, you know, Jesus wept. If Jesus had said, come forth, everyone would have come forth, which is why he had to say, Lazarus, come forth. 
Be glad there wasn't other Lazaruses, you know, in, in, the, in, in that graveyard. He had to be very specific. Why? Because there's power in the words of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, Jesus tells the man to rise up. What happens? John says, what's the correlation? The man was made well. Now, sure, following that healing, he actively obeys the second directive to take up his bed and the third to walk. But only after Jesus had done something within him, something for him, something he couldn't accomplish on his own. Like what this man at the pool of Bethsaida couldn't do in his own energy, his own efforts, complete healing, restoration, Jesus was able to accomplish with one single solitary word. Jesus cures the man of his disease and he reverses its effects. It's the only way he was able to take up his bed and walk. The man was whole. And I should add, as kind of an aside, that if one word coming from the mouth of Jesus possesses that type, that amount of incredible life-changing power, where it can speak into existence that which doesn't, that it can call forth something that struggles... If one word of Jesus has that type of power, then just imagine the transforming effects an entire book or tablet filled with his words might have the ability to accomplish in your heart and in your life. Now, I want to backtrack just a bit because, again, when John was setting the scene, he mentions that this pool possessed five porches. And I bring that up because, you know, again, maybe aside from the few people here that are archaeological majors, uh, you might not understand the significance of it being five porches. That's really weird. In fact, in the ancient world, pools of this type of description were only four-sided. So what this tells us, and John includes the detail, is that the Pool of Bethsaida, its construction was incredibly odd. In fact, for centuries, scholars actually dismissed this detail John gives us as being a literary addition, that it wasn't factual. The problem is, is that the Pool of Bethsaida was excavated in the 19th century, and archaeologists discovered what? A rectangular pool that had two basins separated by a dividing wall that acted as a dam, meaning the Pool of Bethsaida had four porches situated along the outer perimeter with a fifth porch running through the center, dividing these two distinct basins exactly as John described. Now, the reason any of this demands our consideration is what it tells us about the purpose for the Pool of Bethsaida. It would seem that the pool, this was not used for drinking water, but it had a very specific religious function, which would explain its close proximity to the temple. Excavations have revealed that the southern basin had broad steps for entry, which is probably where these people are hanging out, with the northern basin acting as a deep reservoir. Now that tells us that the Pool of Bethsaida was what was known as a mikvah. It was, it was used, it was basically a bath, used for religious immersion, ceremonial purification, 
It was a place where, where the Jews would go. It was like a baptismal, where they would wash before entering the temple to worship and offer sacrifices. According to Hebrew tradition, a mikvah had to be sourced uniquely using living water. Now, in most situations, living water, moving water, uh, not stagnant. It, it would come from a natural spring, which makes sense, like living water, constant flow, or a river. Now, in a situation like this one, where you don't have a natural spring, or you don't have a river, where neither are available, a structure, a two-basin structure, like Bethsaida, was permissible. Now, because of its construction, what would happen is that the southern basin, which is where a pers person would wash, it would be continuously replenished. How? It would be replenished from a flow of fresh water being released from the northern reservoir. So that's where the fresh water would come from. And why is that significant? Well, in the previous chapter, and John does write very thematic, he records an exchange that Jesus has with a Gentile woman at a well when he offers her something quite radical, living water that would permanently quench an internal thirst. In John 4, 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst because the water I give will become in that person a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Living water that creates living water that creates living water. Now, I imagine as John, with quill and pen, is marinating on the promise of living water, he's struck by a contrast provided by this very scene. You see, the pool of Bethsaida was the closest version of living water that Jewish religion had to offer. Like just outside of the temple, there literally existed a pool that advertised what? Living water that would do what? Heal you. See, this pool would provide a great multitude of sick forbidden, by the way, from entering the temple in their unclean condition, an empty hope that if you tried hard, if you could be first, if you're able, you can be healed. For John, the man with the infirmity was the perfect example of how religion had failed and would always fail. The man had come for 38 years to living water provided, offered by religion, and it had failed him. It never provided a healing. He was let down and let down and let down. For 38 long years, the man tried his best to be made whole, but to no avail. And yet, the contrast. Just one encounter with Jesus, uttering one word that oozes power, the man would never need to visit that pool ever again. You see, what religion, his efforts, his ableness, his strength had failed to provide him. Jesus afforded him with a single word, rise. This word, Bethsaida, possesses two meanings. The bet, Bethsaida, it's translated as house of. And the suffix, Aseda, has two different meanings. It's the house of, and then there's two different meanings, whether you're translating it into Hebrew or Aramaic. 
Now, in Aramaic, it's translated as shame. So this was the house of shame. And you can understand that translation. But in the Hebrew, the word means grace. One commentator observed that this dual meaning was appropriate for the location, for it was a place of shame due to the presence of invalids, but it was also a place of grace due to the granting of healing. Like, Can you think of a better place for Jesus to contrast the living water that he came to offer the world with the knockoff afforded by religion than the pool of shame and grace? People in shame came to Bethsaida, desperate for a grace that never came. So Jesus came to those in shame to offer a grace that changes everything. As we close, I ask you to consider, how is this disease of sin remedied? And not just the, the, the disease, the internal part of it, but the external, the effects. How are the effects reversed? Is that even possible? How can the, the, the dead spirit within find itself awakened to life? Or the parts of you deadened by sin stirred back to vitality? How can you rise up and be made well when you aren't able to do it? when you have no strength in and of yourself? Let me give you the answer. While you're in the midst of your brokenness, experiencing maybe the external results of the internal killer called sin, maybe you're in a situation where you have been pursuing remedies that make offerings they never follow through with, remedies that fail, that never work, that let you down. Or maybe you've even incorporated religious rites. But those two have fallen woefully short. And you are feeling lost, worn out, hopeless, desperate, and you are so aware of your weakness. My friend, Jesus sees you, knows you. And right now, He's stepping into your life in order to ask you a very simple question. Do you want to be made well? Sure, like this man at the pool of Bethsaida, like you need to, to desire more than the status quo. Like you need to want living water. Beyond this, you will also need to be honest with yourself, like this man, right? that the things you've been pursuing have failed you. Yes, I want to. It's obvious I'm here. I just can't. No one can get me in the water. I, I fall short every single time. You have to admit this. You have to understand this, that apart from being made, which excludes your involvement, you'll never experience the change, the transformation that you so deeply long for. How amazing that even if you find yourself this morning in a place of shame, that very place can be a place of grace, transforming grace. And yet don't be mistaken. In the end, the miracle occurs. The healing takes place. 
your life changes forever. Not when you muster the energy to obey the impossible commands of God. But the moment Jesus speaks into the depths of your soul and says, rise up. The question, are you listening? Because if you are, you will immediately take up your bed and walk. So Father, Lord, we thank you for that word.